I read a story this week uh, from rural Cambridgeshire. When sheep are taken off to be killed, they know instinctively that the slaughterhouse is a bad place. Somehow they smell or sense something that warns them of danger. So much so that when the lorry stops and the gangplank is put down, they refuse to move. Now the slaughterhouse workers have devised a way of getting around this problem. They keep a sheep on the premises. A sheep who's become used to the place and doesn't mind it anymore. And they take this sheep out to the lorry and up the gangplank and then it walks down again, quite happily, of its own accord. And the other sheep, seeing this one leading the way, would all then follow. Now the reason that this story caught my attention is because the slaughterhouse workers have given a name to this special sheep. They call it Judas. I wonder what you make of that story. I have to admit, I find it a little disturbing. These underhand tactics challenge my thoughtless meat-eating and encourage me to think at least of the welfare of the animals that I consume. Our passage this evening is also a deeply disturbing one. And the reason that it is so uncomfortable for us is that it is based on three great confrontations. And we're going to explore each one in turn and find both a challenge and an encouragement in them. The first confrontation is this. Friendship versus betrayal. The setting for this passage is one of intimate friendship. If you were here last time, you will know that Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. A task so menial you would only volunteer for it if you were wanting to show great devotion. Following this humble act, the friends have begun sharing a meal together. In Jewish culture, to eat bread together is a sign of personal intimacy. Let's picture the scene for a moment. The disciples are not stiffly sat upright on chairs, each behind their own formal place setting like we do at dinner parties. No, verse 23 tells us that they are reclining at the table. In Jewish society, free people reclined to eat their meals, whereas slaves sat or stood. The disciples are sprawled on the floor, perfectly relaxed, in each other's company. We also know from history that the table they reclined at was likely to have been U-shaped. This was a Roman custom that the Jews had adopted. And at the head of the table sat in the middle of the U-bend, if you like, so all of the others could see him. And of course, those closest to him were considered to be the ones who'd been given places of particular honour. And our passage tells us exactly who sat on Jesus' left and right. On one side was the beloved disciple. We think it was the gospel writer, John himself. At the time, he was probably just a young lad, not more than 20, utterly devoted to Jesus. Seemingly, Jesus had a soft spot for him as well. We assume because of his young age that none of the other disciples were resentful about that. 
Notice how he's even closer to Jesus than Peter was. Peter has to motion to him to get him to ask Jesus a question for him. But who was it on the other immediate side of Jesus, sat in a place of great esteem? Well, it was Judas. It must have been. For while reclining, Jesus could dip a piece of bread and pass it to him without stretching. Now let us consider that for a moment. Jesus treated Judas as a beloved friend. We know that they've spent the last three years working and serving in each other's company. They've barely been apart. At some point, Jesus has made Judas the group treasurer, a position of great trust and responsibility. And all the other disciples must have known Jesus' esteem for Judas, for not one of them suspected him when he left the meal that night. And of course, Jesus has just washed Judas' feet along with all the others. Then we come to this moment where Jesus dips the bread in the sauce and passes it to Judas. Giving a titbit in this way was a custom of the time. It was seen as a mark of special favour, the true honouring of a guest. It appears then that even as Jesus unmasks the traitor in his midst, he reaches out to him with one final astonishing act of friendship and appeal. He demonstrates his great love once more. And it's only when we take the time to see the intimacy of this meal that suddenly we begin to see the deepest dimension of what Judas would go on to do. It would be the betrayal of the closest friendship possible. And almost immediately we see the pain of that betrayal. Let me read verse 21 again. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus was troubled in spirit. Troubled in spirit. That is the same description as when Jesus had stood beside the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he wept in great pain and anger at grief. That is the same description as when Jesus had contemplated his upcoming death on the cross in chapter 12. And we saw the pain and the fear that he felt in that moment a few weeks ago. When we read that Jesus is troubled in spirit, we are reading of a moment of great anguish. In fact, Jesus was in such pain here, he knew he couldn't stand it for long. When Judas leaves in verse 27, Jesus urges him to go and do what he's about to do quickly. He simply doesn't want this emotional agony to go on any longer than it had to. This is a disturbing moment as we witness friendship and betrayal confronting one another. What are we to make of it? Well, first, there is the challenge. For us to really love someone, you have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to let your guard down and open up your heart. True love requires generosity and trust and personal sacrifice. There is no other way. 
And what this means then is that if you are bold enough to love deeply, you will also hurt deeply as well. Parents know this as adolescent teenagers ignore them and turn their backs. Jilted spouses know this. Let down friends know this. Betrayal hurts us at the deepest level of our being, the point where we are most vulnerable. And therefore we must do all that we can to avoid it. Do all that we can to stay true and faithful to those who we are in relationship with. But then there is the encouragement. It's humbling to see the way that Jesus loved even Judas, even when he knew what was going to happen. And he loves us just the same way. Jesus loves us with intimacy and abandon. He's prepared to suffer on our behalf as well. Truly, we are loved more deeply than we could ever imagine. If we had been at that meal, Jesus would have washed our feet. If we had been at that meal, he would have served us the bread and the wine and whispered those words, this is my body, broken for you. And even today, Jesus invites us to come to his table and recline against him in fellowship. The betrayal of Judas highlights the loving friendship of Jesus that is on offer to us today. The second great confrontation in this passage is the power of evil versus the sovereignty of God. By far, the most troubling verse in our reading is verse 27. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And suddenly we see that something hideously malicious is at play here. The word Satan in Hebrew means accuser. It's a legal term for someone who brings a prosecution, a charge against someone else. If you want an example, think about the book of Job in the Old Testament. There the Satan brought the charge that Job only loved God because he had lots of good things in his life. And if they were taken away, Job would despise him. And of course, God responded to the prosecutor's charge and proved that it was false. But we get the idea. It is the Satan's job to take the defendant down. And here we see then that Judas is being used by the forces of evil to take down Jesus. Now, you can only be willingly enlisted by evil. You have to choose to let the Satan into your life. And we will think more about that in a moment. But what I want us to notice here is the serious reality that there is a battle going on between good and evil. A battle that rages on even today. In the Bible, it is most noticeable that where God is most deeply at work, Satan's attack is most acute. Think about it. Jesus gets baptised. He's then immediately tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus is transfigured on the mountaintop. The disciples get to see his full glory. What happens next? They come down the mountain and find a boy possessed by a demon so vicious, no one can drive it out. 
In Luke's account of the Lord's Supper, the meal that we're reading about here in John 13, Jesus tells Simon Peter that Satan wanted him as well, but that he was protected because Jesus himself was praying on Peter's behalf. Honestly, Satan's desire to attack Jesus and sabotage his followers is more dangerous than we could ever imagine. But, and this is a big but, notice also how stamped throughout this whole passage is the overarching sovereignty of God. Does Judas's evil betrayal catch Jesus off guard? No, not at all. It hurt. It hurt like hell, literally. But Jesus knew full well that it was coming, didn't he? When Jesus had been talking to Peter about washing his feet in the first part of this chapter, he told him that he didn't need to wash him all over because he was already clean. Do you remember him saying that? But then in verse 10, he went a little further and told Peter that although he and the other disciples were clean, there was one among them who wasn't. And verse 11 then told us that Jesus said this because he knew who was going to betray him. And in verse 18, the opening verse of our reading tonight, that theme got picked up again. This time Jesus states that he knows all those he has chosen. He knows full well what is going on in their hearts. He could see right through them, right from the inside out. Jesus knew Judas. And when he gave him that piece of bread, he knew the treachery that festered inside of him. And there is a very important reason as to why Jesus was so bold in the prediction of his betrayal. Let me read again verse 19. Jesus says, I am telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Jesus tells his disciples in advance about his betrayal so they will know I am who I am. That is the divine name, isn't it? The holy, sacred, utterly unique name for God revealed as it was to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. And Moses was given that name in a moment where he felt daunted by the wicked Pharaoh and under personal threat. And here Jesus speaks the name again when that threat of evil was at its most daunting. He makes the prediction of his betrayal in advance so that the disciples will see even in great trouble he remains the all-sufficient object of their faith. In addition to that, Jesus also makes it plain that Scripture long ago had foretold of this betrayal. In verse 18, Jesus uses a quote. This is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. That is a direct quote from verse 9 of Psalm 41, the psalm that we began our service with. Psalm 41 was written by King David a thousand years before Jesus. 
a psalm written as a lament when David himself felt betrayed. And as we read that psalm, we heard David pouring out verse after verse of agonised thought and emotion. But then eventually, aware of God's presence, he comes to rest. And the psalm finishes with an expression of trust in the Lord. David knew that even in his suffering, God was present and his mercy and victory was guaranteed. And here Jesus uses the psalm to make the same point. This is a moment of great sorrow for him. A moment of emotional pain that will lead to physical pain in 24 hours time. But Jesus knows through it all, God's purposes are being worked out. Victory sits on the horizon. Through God's sovereignty, the scriptures are still being fulfilled. So the great second confrontation in this passage is the power of evil against the sovereignty of God. C.S. Lewis once famously said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence. The other is to believe And to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. The challenge of witnessing this confrontation is realising that spiritual attack is real. Evil really exists. It's powerful and it wants to take God's work down. We have to be alert to that. In the Bible, Paul is brutally honest about the danger of us falling just like Judas did. At one point, he warns the church of those who turned away to follow Satan. At another, he speaks of the devil as trying to trap us into doing his will. Our gospel writer, John, in his letters at the end of the Bible, also told of people he knew who had known the Christian faith, but then ended up standing against Jesus. And he labelled these people antichrists. Today, we find false teaching on the TV and in books. We have people in churches embezzling funds and church clergy committing child abuse. We have people who leave the church and then attack it with force, doing great harm. We have powerful agendas in society trying to silence the church or remove it from the public sphere and are currently tearing the church apart. Evil is very real and we have to be on our guard that's the challenge but here's the encouragement god is still sovereign and he is still in control and his grace remains sufficient for us in verse 3 of this chapter jesus declared that the father had put all things all things under his power that includes evil and as an example of this in verse 27 when jesus commands judas to leave quickly he gets up and leaves quickly so what we must see in this passage is that jesus is using the evil forces that are convulsing against him to achieve his own ends 
Evil doesn't force Jesus to the cross. Jesus allows evil to take him to the cross because he knows full where once there, he will defeat it. Once and for all. And if Jesus could master and harness evil back then, he can still do the same today. We can be assured that God's purposes will come to be and nothing, nothing can stop them. One day Jesus is coming back. And on that day, evil, which he's already defeated at the cross, will be removed forevermore. And while we wait for that day to come and we experience evil in its death throes, we can be certain that Jesus is in control and he remains worthy of our praise no matter what we're going through. So there are two great confrontations in this frankly disturbing passage. Friendship versus betrayal. The power of evil against the sovereignty of God. There's one more I want us to see. It's the confrontation between darkness and light. The final verse of our reading is a powerful one. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. John is a master storyteller, isn't he? The night in that verse is both literal and symbolic, isn't it? Throughout his gospel, John has described Jesus as the light. Night, of course, is the antithesis to that, the exact opposite. For John, darkness is the place of stumbling and hopelessness. Darkness is the place of unbelief and opposition. Darkness is the place where you find yourself truly lost. How did Judas reach this position where he is prepared to betray Jesus? For me, that is a vital question. I've been wrestling with it all week. Here is a man who stood closer to the revelation of God than many. Here is a man who had heard Jesus teach him, who'd witnessed his miracles with his own eyes. Here is a man who'd even had his own feet washed by Jesus. The Bible actually gives us very little explanation as to the inner workings of Judas's mind. Much of what you will hear on the subject is just human conjecture. But the Bible does use this metaphor of light and dark. Judas got absorbed into the darkness to such an extent that in the end, he was barely his own person. How does that happen? Well, in some way or other, it has to happen willingly. The pattern of scripture is that as humans, we continually flirt with the darkness until slowly we become one of its own. Somewhere along the line, Judas took a wrong turn. He misunderstood Jesus and he misunderstood the way that he would act as Israel's Messiah. But instead of admitting his mistake, instead of going back and retracing his steps, Judas stubbornly pressed on ahead, out further and further into the night. Ever so gradually, the darkness took over his heart to the point where he ended up despising the light itself. When at that meal, Jesus offered him that piece of bread, the love of God shone 
into Judas's darkened heart one more time. But in one final act of defiance, Jesus closed the door and pushed the light out and turned to the darkness one more time. A darkness that had no end. Light and dark is one of the key themes of John's Gospel. In chapter 3, verse 19, we read, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Judas is the ultimate example of that. So here then is our final challenge. When Jesus is encountered... When his life and work is preached, audiences will always divide. Some will believe in him and some will refuse him utterly. It happens in every church service up and down the land. It will be happening tonight. But we cannot be naive. Every time we refuse Jesus, we shut the light out. And we embrace the darkness. And we may go on doing that for months and years. And God keeps shining his light. But here's the warning. We are not always aware when the darkness takes over completely. And there's no way back. And I urge us tonight to accept the light while we still can. That's the challenge. But here's the final encouragement. There's another verse in John's Gospel about light and dark. A verse so, so important. In his prologue, John described Jesus as the light of all humankind. And then he says in verse 5, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, as Jesus felt the great pain of Judas's betrayal, it was dark. As Jesus suffered the emotional turmoil of Gethsemane, it was dark. As he suffered and died on the cross, it was dark. Indeed, darkness covered the whole land. But on Easter Sunday morning, the light shone brightly once more, because the sun had risen. The truth is that even the darkness was held within the overall purposes of God. The light will shine and it will always overcome it. So be it fear of the news and the dark forces of Putin, be it the darkness of bereavement that you're going through, be it the gloom laden clouds of a poor health diagnosis, God will bring us through these things to light the other side. All we need to do is hold on to him because in the end, light always wins. So to finish, this is a deeply challenging passage. One where we see the sin of our own betrayal, the powerful temptation of evil and the frightening darknesses of our world. This is reality as we know it. But at the same time, we also find the beautiful friendship of Jesus, the unconquerable sovereignty of God, 
and the light that shines for all to see. We are to be aware of the challenges and we're to embrace the encouragements. And if we do, we can be assured that one day we will be sat at a meal table with our Lord Jesus. A meal that we shall have a foretaste of in a few moments' time.